Welcome to the EggerSafe Network podcast, where our mission is protecting the people who feed the world. Dr. Lisa Marishi is an associate professor at the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at Tulane University. Um, and she is a tenured associate professor in the department. Her research program focuses on the development of next generation vaccines for biodefense and emerging or re-emerging infectious diseases. Dr. Marishi has successfully moved candidate vaccines from the discovery stage to planned phase one clinical trials. Her vaccine research program is currently supported by the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Defense. And I can tell you that Lisa has been working uh, nonstop since this started to not only do this research, but also educate others. So she's done a lot of town halls and she's here to speak to you about the vaccine itself. I'm gonna go ahead and mute my mic and turn it over to you, Lisa. Thank you so much, Natalie, for the generous introduction. And, and thanks to all of the participants for joining today. Um, it's always a pleasure for me to be able to talk to vaccines, talk about vaccines to the community. I know there's a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of fear. And so, you know, hopefully today I can share my thoughts with you, share some of the science and some of the evidence for these vaccines, maybe explain them a little bit easier than, than what we've heard on the, on the news. And, um, and then you know we'll open it up for your questions, and you can you can ask me some of you know some of the, the things that you might have heard or or concerned about. So let me go ahead and share my screen here. See if you guys oops, let's share screen. Here we go. Okay. Hopefully you guys can see that. Okay. Yep, you're good to go. All right, excellent. So, you know, when we think about vaccines, most of us are familiar with traditional vaccines. And when we talk about traditional vaccines, the vaccines that we're all used to, that we received as kids, that we receive annually, like the flu vaccine, what we're talking about there or what we refer to as one drug for one bug. So if you can take flu virus as an example, and you imagine that we wanna vaccinate and protect the population from flu, what we've traditionally done is we take the organism itself, the flu virus itself, and we grow it into very large batches. And then we inactivate that virus so that it's somewhat, you know, viruses aren't really alive, but we, we refer to them as inactivated so that they're harmless, they can't cause disease. And then we take that, those big batches of inactivated virus and we put them into vials and then we inject them into our arm as, a, as what's known as an inactivated virus vaccine. And, and flu, you know, that we get every year is, a, is an example of that type of technology. And then the other one that we're really used to is, is similar where you, you again, you, you take the virus of interest, for example, and you grow it up in very large batches, and then you weaken it so that it can't cause disease in our bodies. And there are various ways that we can weaken viruses. We can do it chemically, we can do it genetically. And, and basically, you know, the weakened virus can then induce a really robust immune response in our bodies, but it can't cause disease in, in, in healthy individuals. And so an example of that type of technology is, is the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine that we've all, you know, received as children and, and vaccinate our children with. And so these are what we're used to. This is what the public has, has experienced for decades. But as you guys are aware, we've got new technologies now. And, and I think the new technologies are, are somewhat misunderstood. And so I thought I might break it down for you. You know, what are these technologies and 
how do they actually work? So let's start with the messenger RNA vaccines, which are the platforms that Pfizer and Moderna both use. And those are the ones that are currently authorized for use here in the United States. And so basically what we're doing here is we're taking messenger RNA as the platform. So what is messenger RNA? Our bodies use messenger RNA to tell our cells how to make proteins. And so they relay the information encoded on our DNA, and then they take that information, that's why they're called messenger, they message that information to our protein factories in our cells to tell our cells how to make proteins. So messenger RNA at any point in time in our body, we have hundreds of thousands of copies of messenger RNA in our own cells. So what scientists and engineers have figured out, we can synthesize this messenger RNA in the laboratory and we can plug into that messenger RNA the genetic information for any virus protein of interest. So in the case of the COVID vaccines, that viral protein of interest is what's known as the spike protein. I'm sure you guys have heard a lot about the spike protein. The spike protein is what decorates the surface of the virus, and it's what it uses to attach to our host cells and invade our body. And so the thought is that if we can induce an immune response to the spike protein, we can block that virus from invading our host cells. And the immune system can also see it very well because again, it decorates the surface of that virus. And so all we're doing is we're, telling, we're, we're basically taking the messenger RNA and plugging in the instructions for the spike protein. So our cells see that messenger RNA and they say, aha, here's a piece of mRNA that's telling us to make this protein. And they make it just like they make all of our other proteins. And that protein gets presented on the surface of our cells. And so that messenger RNA, once it's done its job, it's degraded rapidly in the body. It's broken down and it's gone. It doesn't hang around. And so messenger RNA is actually highly unstable. It's degraded very easily. And so to get it into the body and to get it into our host cells, engineers and scientists figured out that they have to coat it in these lipid nanoparticles. Now that's a really fancy term, but all you really need to know is that these are little bitty, 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 tiny fat bubbles. And those fat bubbles help protect the mRNA. And those are what are injected into our arm. And those are del delivering the messenger RNA into our host cells. And so again, that our host cells can then make that protein. That protein gets presented on the surface of our cell where our immune system, like antibodies, can recognize it and mount an immune response to it. That way, if we're ever injected or infected, excuse me, with the, with the real virus, we already have pre-existing antibodies or other immune cells like T cells that can then react very quickly to the virus to protect us. So it's a very straightforward technology. It's what we call a plug and play, as opposed to one drug for one bug. These technologies are really cool because the messenger RNA can encode any protein from any virus. So that's why we call it plug and play. And they were designed for this exact purpose, to combat a pandemic, to combat an emerging virus that we didn't know how to grow and make lots of it. And this was based on um, advances that have been in development for more than 30 years. I can promise you this did not work like magic you know, in a month. This has been in development for 30 years. It's been tested and improved upon 
so that it would be ready to, to respond to a pandemic like COVID-19. So just to tell you guys a little bit about the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, I'm sure you guys are already familiar with this. Again, they're both very, very similar. They both use the messenger RNA platform. They both use these little lipid nanoparticles or fat bubbles to deliver the mRNA to our cells. Uh, the difference is that Moderna is a two-dose schedule and the second dose is given four weeks later. The Pfizer is a second, the second dose is given three weeks later. In terms of their efficacy, in terms of their ability to reduce symptomatic disease, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a little bit, what do we, in terms of what we mean by symptomatic disease. They're both very, very good. So 94 to 95% efficacy for these mRNA platforms in terms of preventing mild to moderate COVID. It's even better for severe disease and hospitalization and death. And I'll get to that in a second. So what are the other uh, types of um, vaccines that are out there that you guys are gonna hear about hopefully soon? So the Johnson & Johnson uh, platform, as well as the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccines are based on what are known as an adenovirus vector vaccine. These are also plug and play because in this instance, we have a virus. It's known as an adenovirus. All it does is cause a common cold. AstraZeneca uses one derived from chimpanzees that causes common colds in chimpanzees. Uh, Johnson & Johnson use, uses a modified human adenovirus that just causes the common cold in us typically when we were kids. And so this adenovirus carries the gene, and that gene encodes the information for making the spike protein. So very similar to the messenger RNA, this is delivering the gene to make the spike protein. And as you can imagine with the mRNA, these adenoviruses, you could plug and play any virus protein of interest into these viral vectors as well. And they work very similarly. The virus will deliver the gene of interest to our cells. The cells will, will read that gene, and that gene eventually gets made in a protein, and that protein is put on the, the cell surface so that we can mount an immune response to it. So the great news about these adenovirus vaccines is like the mRNA technology, they target the spike protein too. And we know that that's been very successful and that it's inducing a great immune response and it's giving us great protection against COVID. So we're very hopeful that these adenovirus vaccines are gonna do a great job too. So let me tell you a little bit about those. The, the, the one you've probably heard the most about is the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. As I mentioned, it's, a, it's based on a chimp adenovirus vector that delivers the gene for the spike protein to our cells. It's also a two-dose vaccine. It's given anywhere between three and 12 weeks apart. So recent data out of the UK suggests that waiting 12 weeks for the second dose for this vaccine is better. And so they're seeing 75%, excuse me, 76% efficacy after the first dose and 82%, so a slight bump up in efficacy if you wait 12 weeks for that second dose. But the really encouraging news out of the UK is that this vaccine that's being widely distributed to, to people there, they, they've been swabbing the noses of individuals and following them after that first dose of vaccine. And when they look again at 12 weeks later, they're finding that people who have received the vaccine 
don't have any evidence of virus in their in their in their noses, and they're they're monitoring these people weekly. So this is really exciting because what it means is that this vaccine may actually be blocking infection, so colonization with the virus, which would then prevent transmission of the virus. And it, we're seeing a reduction in about 67% of vaccinated individuals. That's very exciting because if they're not colonized with the virus in their, in their nasal cavity, they can't transmit the virus to someone who's not vaccinated yet. And because the efficacy for this vaccine is lower than the mRNA vaccines, we're hopeful that the mRNA, mRNA vaccines are going to be able to reduce infection and transmission as well. And we're still waiting on that data. The one you're gonna hear about real soon, I hope, is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because they just asked the US FDA for approval or for emergency use authorization based on the results of their phase three clinical trial. And it's one dose. And they're reporting an overall efficacy of 66%. So that was worldwide where they conducted their phase three clinical trials. But the, there was an efficacy rate of 72% here in the United States. Um, and so some of you may be thinking, well, I don't know about these you know, adenovirus vaccines. If I'm offered the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, I might like to hold off and wait and get the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine because you know, Dr. Marisi just told me that that that's 94, 95% efficacy versus 70, you know, 72% efficacy. I'm going to hold off for the other one. So here's what I want to sort of explain, explain about the vaccines. When we're talking about efficacy, you know, what are they actually reporting? So you guys can imagine if you're exposed to the virus, there are many different outcomes to that, right? You could, you could get exposed and you might not get colonized with the virus at all. And you might get no infection whatsoever or you might get colonized with the virus. And, and we call that, if, if, if the virus is able to establish colonization and, caught, and you, you do have an infection with the virus, but it may be asymptomatic. And so we're hearing a lot about that in our, in, you know, hopefully in our, in our children, thank goodness, and in, in our, our, you know, our adolescents and teens, they seem to get a lot of asymptomatic infection. So they're carrying the virus, they may be transmitting the virus, but they're not getting sick. And then there's the rest of us who, are likely to get, uh, you know, adults, we're likely to get symptomatic infection. And that can manifest in many different ways. So you could have very mild to moderate disease, or you could progress to very severe disease and hospitalization, and you could even die. And so when I'm telling you these efficacy rates that are being reported from these phase three clinical trials that the media is, you know, is picking up and advertising, what they're talking about is this mild to moderate disease right here. This is what those efficacy rates are measuring. So Moderna and Pfizer are, are, are 94 to, they're causing a 94 to 95% reduction in mild to moderate disease in vaccinated individuals compared to folks that weren't vaccinated in their clinical trials. And then again, the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson are somewhere in the 70% range. But what I really want you guys to appreciate is that every single one of these vaccines is doing a terrific job at preventing severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And it's for this reason that I would encourage you to get the first vaccine that's made available to you, no matter what it is, because they're all gonna save your life. They're all gonna prevent you from going into the hospital. They're really good at that. And they're, gonna, and they're going to help us get the herd immunity.
So let me tell you guys a little bit about some of the myths and misinformation that's being spread on social media um, and, 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 and Facebook. And I, and I was really happy to see that Facebook just came out with a statement that they are going to block and remove any misinformation. So any, any misinformation that's posted about not just COVID vaccines, but vaccines in general, um, if it's scientifically untrue and, 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 and the data supports that, that that is not the case, they are going to remove it. So I was, I was thrilled to see that. But I'm sure you guys have heard a lot of these. So first of all, let me just say that the vaccines, even though these are nucleic acid-based vaccines, um, you know, messenger RNA, for example, they're not going to integrate into your DNA. As I mentioned to you, messenger RNA is highly unstable. The proof, the, the proof in that, if, 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 even if you don't put the, believe the biology of, of messenger RNA being highly unstable, I'm sure you guys have all heard about Pfizer needing these ultra cold storage um, facilities and ultra cold freezers to store the vaccine. That's why, because the messenger RNA, if you leave it at room temperature, it, it breaks down, it gets degraded. And so again, um, you know, they're fantastic vaccines. Um, they're, they're, they're easily broken down. That's why they have to be kept in, in the freezer and they're not going to integrate in your DNA. They're not gonna hang around in your body. And as a matter of fact, the messenger RNA can't even reach the compartment in our cells, the nucleus where our DNA is housed. Um, same thing with these adenoviruses. These are modified genetically so that they cannot replicate in, in your body. So they can't cause disease. One, again, once, once the protein is made, they're, they're broken down, they're not gonna hang around. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, female health, there's been a lot of misinformation about these vaccines causing, that they're gonna cause female infertility. Completely false. There's no scientific evidence for that statement. I actually did some, some reading uh, um, into that statement to see how it was derived. And basically they're trying to suggest that there's, there's you know, four little tiny pieces of the protein between the female placenta that match um, the SARS-CoV-2, uh, the coronavirus spike protein. And so they're saying, oh, well, if you get the vaccine you know, that targets the spike protein, it's gonna target the female placenta and you're gonna get autoimmunity and you're not gonna be able to get, you know, you're not gonna be able to conceive. Again, completely false, no scientific basis for that. Um, in fact, there were multiple women in the Pfizer vaccine trial who received the vaccine and became pregnant. And again, if, that, if there was any truth to that statement, we would see a lot of infertility in women getting infected with the virus because the virus harbors the spike protein as well. And that's just not the case. Um, we do know that the virus causes complications and, and you know, pregnant women are more likely to suffer complications from, from viral infections. So it's important you know, that women uh, protect themselves with the vaccine. Okay, so uh, the other point I'd like to make is the, the vaccines do not cause COVID-19. They, they absolutely cannot, I hope I've convinced you that from sharing with you how these platforms are made. They simply carry a piece and instructions to make a piece of the virus there's no way it can cause the disease itself. It's not the in intact virus, it's not live virus. The vaccines do not carry microchips to track you. That's another one that's been going around. Uh, microchips are actually a thousand times bigger than those tiny, tiny, tiny nanoparticles and the adenovirus itself is, is a nanoparticle. So these, uh, these microchips simply would not fit in vaccines, completely untrue. This is probably the, the, the last statement here is probably the one that I can appreciate the most for, for people. 
And it's the thought that these vaccines you know, were rushed. And so what I'd like to try to do here is explain to you why these vaccines were not rushed and how they were expedited without cutting safety corners. So this is the traditional, um, up here at the top, is the traditional paradigm for producing a vaccine. And you know, on average, it takes vaccines typically about 10 years from the beginning to the end for them to, to get approved uh, for human use. And, and why is that? Well, um, most of the time it's because there's not, there's not a great sense of urgency. And so you're trying to develop a vaccine for um, a disease that you know, it would be great to have a vaccine against and it would save a lot of, of mortality, but it's not, it's not um, you know, a global crisis. And so people are developing vaccines and once they finally have something that looks good in animal models, they'll, um, they'll share that data with the FDA and they'll ask for approval to conduct clinical trials. And those clinical trials start off as phase, you know, what we typically think of as phase one that progresses to phase two and eventually phase three. And so these trials can typically take years to complete. And that's because of a number of reasons. First of all, they're very expensive. And so there's a huge financial investment on the part of the ph pharmaceutical company. And there's also um, you know, a huge financial risk because there's no guarantee that these vaccines are, are going to work for, for most vaccines. In fact, most vaccines fail. And so they, they do this slowly. And so in phase one, they recruit, you know, maybe, um, you know, less than 100 individuals or, or, or a couple of hundred individuals. And then they'll move to phase two where, where they'll expand that to a few thousand. And then many years later, they'll move to phase three if the phase one and phase two look good and they'll enroll tens of thousands of people. And so what happened in the, in the and so these, these wait for each other to occur, right? So they take, they take many years to occur. And then if they do get, you know, if they do get the green light, if they do look good, then they start manufacturing on a large scale because they're not going to start doing this if they're not going to get approval. So if we look at what happened in this circumstance, we knew that we needed, uh, you know, vaccines and we needed them quickly. So as I mentioned, these platforms have been in development for decades. They weren't really new. And so we already had a tremendous knowledge uh, in, in animals. We also actually had some phase one data already because some of these platforms were in use for other diseases like Zika virus, Ebola virus, and HIV AIDS. And so we already had safety data on many of these platforms. And so what we did is we initiated phase one trials. And then once we had enough safety data in this phase one cohort, we began phase two without waiting for phase one to complete. But again, we waited until we had enough safety data and enough people enrolled that we could follow in phase one before we initiated phase two. And then the same thing for phase three. So the phases were overlapped. And so what we were able to do is again, all of the participants in these phases are being followed very carefully for safety and efficacy of the vaccines. But instead of waiting for one to finish completely, so again, these phase one individuals, they, you, know, you don't follow them for two months and, and, and stop, you follow them for two years. But we didn't wanna wait two years to get a vaccine for COVID-19. So what we, did, what we did is we started phase two. And then once we had enough data in phase two to warrant phase three, we started phase three. And so we were able to condense the time 
from years to basically four months for the Moderna uh, messenger RNA vaccine. The initiation from phase one to phase three occurred in a four month period. And why were, why was, there were two other reasons we were able to do that. One, again, the, the vaccines had to prove that they were safe and, and looked like they would work in these individuals. But we had lots and lots of volunteers. So you can imagine if there's a new vaccine in development for some disease you've never heard of, it's really hard to recruit volunteers for these clinical trials. But we had a, you know, an amazing turnout of willing participants, people who wanted to contribute, who wanted to get involved. And so it was very easy to recruit people to these phase one, two, and three clinical, clinical trials. And in phase three, we're talking about tens of thousands of people. And so that was great. People volunteered, we were able to enroll people very quickly. And so that also diminished the delay. And lastly, it was that, you know, the biggest thing, I think it always comes down to money, the financial risk, and it was mitigated by the federal government and other agencies that helped offset the risks and the cost. And the federal government donated more than $26 billion to these companies to help finance these vaccines. And that's the real reason that they were able to go so quickly. So they were able to initiate manufacturing well before the end of the phase three clinical trial. So uh, if we look at Pfizer's trial, there were 43,000 volunteers in the phase three clinical trial across six countries and 16 US states. In Moderna's trial, they had 30,000 volunteers in 30 US states. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is the one I think the, the, you know, the United States will implement hopefully in the next week or two, they had already tested that viral vector, that adenovirus vector that they use for other diseases in other parts of the world in hundreds of thousands of individuals. So we already had a really good idea of its safety and immunogenicity. And the results from these clinical trials told us that it was safe and efficacious across all genders, all ages, ethnic and all different ethnic and racial groups and people with pre-existing medical conditions that were also enrolled in these studies. So again, you know, these vaccines, as far as vaccines go, are some of the safest that have ever been developed. And I can promise you that before authorization, these vaccines were incredibly scrutinized. So we, we hear a lot about the FDA that will carefully review the safety data from these clinical trials. One example that these vaccines aren't being rushed is, you know, Johnson & Johnson released their phase three um, data and requested emergency use authorization more than a week ago. And we're still waiting, right? We're still waiting for the FDA to, do, to issue that. That's because they are taking their time, carefully reviewing all of the safety data from those trials. And they're also waiting on the recommendations of an advisory committee on immunization practices, which is a independent group of experts that have no connection to these trials or these pharmaceutical companies. They are vaccine experts, they're clinicians, they're scientists, and they're looking at the data as well. And they're going to make a recommendation to the FDA. And so we're waiting on those folks to tell us, you know, if, these, if they feel these vaccines are safe and effective. And then once the vaccines are given emergency use authorization, there are numerous mechanisms in place to follow the safety and efficacy of these vaccines in not only the volunteers in the clinical trials still, who are still being closely monitored, 
but also in people like us who, who are getting the vaccines. So the FDA and the CDC are monitoring safety and side effects. And there are all sorts of now great apps and, and websites where you know, any one of us can go on and report an adverse event. And so you know, millions of people have already responded to the CDC who have received the mRNA vaccines. And you know, the side effects are mostly mild. So, you know, what are the side effects? Um, again, I, I want to reassure you that these nucleic acid-based vaccines, they don't remain in our body. Um, the side effects that we're seeing are mostly mild or moderate. So people are getting headaches, maybe some fatigue, definitely pain at the injection site. And then some people are developing chills and fever, particularly, particularly after the second dose of the mRNA vaccines. Probably the, the biggest um, adverse uh, event that we're seeing from the mRNA vaccines are these allergic reactions that we're hearing about, which are typically between two and six cases per 1 million doses that are given. So the, the uh, Moderna's is about two per million, Pfizer's is about six per million doses. And it's thought that the allergic reaction is due to the polyethylene glycol that's in those little fat uh, bubbles that I talked to you about, the little lipid nanoparticles. And um, polyethylene glycol has been considered biologically safe for, long, for you know, a very long time. And it's, so it's used in a lot of things. And it's thought that the human population has, some people have developed allergies to polyethylene glycol due to its, its common use. And so, you know, all of these allergic reactions that, that, are, that, are, that we're seeing, again, very rare um, and, and all treatable. Um, so again, uh, most of these vaccine side effects are, are, are very moderate, mild. Um, I'd like to also point out, you know, there's, vaccines get, I think, get a bad rap and people are very fearful of them because of the misinformation. You know, they're sort of the sharks of the ocean, right? And so, but, you know, please remember, it's, it's so much safer to, to get the vaccine than the risk getting COVID, right? We have thousands of people dying of COVID daily. And you know your chance of dying with COVID is is you know it's 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 really you know if you're if you're in those uh, high risk groups it's high and so we know that um, there are other effects as well so you know one in ten people have these prolonged illnesses uh, many have four month long battles of symptoms we're seeing neurological issues we're seeing chronic fatigue syndrome. And we're even seeing that people who were, had asymptomatic infections, so they, they didn't even know that they, they had the virus, but they test positive. When we're looking at their, their, um, you know, their uh, readouts of, of health of their heart and their lung, we're seeing abnormalities. So th this is a very frightening virus. I think we're going to see um, consequences of this virus in, in individuals manifesting later in life. And so any unknown fear of getting a vaccine it, it, you just have to, you know, sort of balance that with the extreme risk and likelihood of disease from this virus. So do we really need a vaccine? So let me just throw some math out to you. This is sort of, you know, very simple, simple math. If we estimate, you know, that 20% of Americans are immune, it might be a little higher in some, some cities, some parts of the country, but if we estimate on average that 20% of Americans are immune, meaning they, they have some sort of natural immunity to the virus from either asymptomatic or symptomatic infection. 
And if we say that we need about 80% of the population to be immune, to, to help us get to herd immunity, and I know you guys as, as, as being in the agricultural business are very familiar with herd immunity because it certainly affects our you know, animals and crops too. And it, it just simply means that we need an, you know, enough of individuals to have immunity to the virus that we can sort of block uh, and, and, and limit the transmission of the virus so that people who aren't immune are protected. So if we just say that we need 80% of the, of the population to, uh, to, to, to achieve herd immunity, then if in 20% are already immune. So we, we need 60% more Americans to become immune to get there. So 60% of 330 million Americans is about 198 million Americans that are still not protected. So if those 198 million Americans don't get vaccinated, and we're looking at a one to 2% death rate with this virus, then we're looking at two to 4 million more Americans dying. And I don't know about you guys, but that's to me is just heartbreaking. And so this vaccine, these vaccines, you know, if we implement these, and, and I think we're gonna see a huge, you know, um, increase in vaccination over the next couple of weeks, we could really save lives. And so I, I would really encourage you guys to get vaccinated, encourage your loved ones to get vaccinated. So you guys have probably heard a lot about the variants in the news. And, and so what are, what are viral variants? You know, viruses mutate. That's what they do. That's how they evolve. Um, this isn't really surprising to us that they're doing this. They're doing it uh, much more uh, quickly than we had expected. And that's because worldwide, we've done a pretty lousy job of containing this virus. And so uh, the one that you guys have probably heard a lot about is this um, this virus that was first detected in, in, in England, it's, it's known as B117. And it's here in the United States and it's probably going to become the dominant um, viral variant in a few months. And so what we mean by that is it's mutated in a way that that spike protein that is um, encoded in our vaccines is now different on the virus itself. It's mutated a couple of you know, uh, regions in its spike protein um, that's allowing it to sort of try to escape our immune response. And so uh, we know that this virus is more highly transmissible than the original virus. And so that's a, an important uh, point that we all still need to keep wearing masks. Um, it's not more deadly, but if it's more transmissible, it's gonna infect more people and it's gonna cause more hospitalizations and deaths. But the mutation itself is not making it more deadly. Um, Fortunately, it has low immune escape, and uh, most of the, the, the vaccines uh, uh, do do a very good job of, of still protecting against this variant. The one that's emerged in South Africa is known as B1351. It is also in the United States now. Um, it has high immune escape, meaning it's mutated its spike protein in such a way that it's able to escape some of the immune responses that were either... Um, promoted from natural infection with the virus or that the vaccines are inducing. And so we already have these plug and play vaccines being modified to protect against this variant. And so this is really important. Um, we know that uh, Pfizer's vaccine still does a very good job against this variant. I think Moderna's is going to do a very good job as well. And when you're seeing reports in the news that the vaccines don't work as well against these variants, Again, what they're talking about is that mild to moderate disease. These vaccines are still providing very good protection against severe disease, hospitalization, and death, even against these variants. 
And that's why it's really important that we all get vaccinated as quickly as possible so that we can stop this virus from spreading and mutating even further. And then I'd like to end with uh, some common questions about the COVID vaccines that um, many of you may have, and then we'll open it up to your, to your questions. So, so the first is, should pregnant women get the vaccine? And um, as you know, pregnant women are, um, are more likely to experience um, severe disease from many infections. And the fetus is also susceptible to many infections. And so the CDC has, has issued that pregnant women should be offered the vaccine. And I know for many women, that's a very personal decision. And so I would encourage you to speak with your healthcare provider and talk, you know, talk to them if you have any concerns. But again, you know, keep in mind that the risk of, of, the, uh, of, of, of infection with the virus is, is, is very uh, dangerous. And as, as I hope I've explained uh, to you, these vaccines, and particularly the mRNA vaccines, you know, they don't contain any live virus. Um, and so they're very safe. And um, pregnant women, you know, it's not thought that, the, that pregnant women would have any increased risk for those vaccines. Should immune suppressed individuals get the vaccines? So immune suppressed covers a very large, you know, population of individuals with very different um, immune uh, circumstances. And so again, uh, you are um, more likely probably to suffer from severe uh, infection with the virus and perhaps get hospitalized or die if you're immune suppressed. And so you also should consider getting the vaccine. You should talk with your healthcare provider as well as uh, you know, the, the doctor or nurse who's administering the vaccine to you about your underlying condition and about the medications that you're on. There is a checklist you know, when you uh, consent to being vaccinated that will ask you specific questions about your medications and they can counsel you at that time about, about the vaccine. Can children get the vaccine? So uh, Pfizer vaccine is approved for individuals 16 years and older. Moderna's is approved for 18 years and older. So as of now, anyone under those age groups cannot get the vaccine. The uh, trials are underway. So Moderna has trials, Pfizer as trials, they're underway for children. Um, they're looking at uh, 12 to 16, seven to 12, I think some even six to 12. So they're doing sort of what's known as a dose escalation where they lower the amount of vaccine that's given and, they, and they're testing to see if it's safe and effective in kids. And I've heard Dr. Fauci from the NIH speak and say that we think or we're hopeful that perhaps vaccines will be available for first graders by the, uh, the fall uh, for, for the next school year but those clinical trials are underway now. If someone had COVID, should they still get the vaccine? So the answer to this is yes. Um, we don't know how long protection against COVID lasts. It's thought that probably about three months, you're, you're still safe. If you, so if you recovered from COVID about three months later, you're, you're definitely probably still safe from reinfection. But these new variants are emerging, as I mentioned, so that's gonna throw a curveball to us. Um, and so the recommendation is yes, you absolutely should still get the vaccine. Uh, the CDC is indicating if you've been treated with convalescent plasma or monoclonal antibodies as part of uh, a COVID treatment, that you should wait 90 days before you get the vaccine. And that's because uh, if any of that is still um, remaining in your system, it could actually blunt the effects of the vaccine and the vaccine wouldn't do any good. But um, if you have any concerns or questions, talk to your healthcare provider.
And then uh, do I still have to wear a mask after getting the vaccine? So, you know, unfortunately we do, we still have to wear masks and that's because it's gonna take some time, you know, for uh, everyone to get vaccinated. You're not protected after the, you know, right away after the vaccine. So, um, you know, that first dose of vaccine is going to provide a lot of, a lot of protection, but it's that second dose that's, that's, you know, you really need to get for the mRNA vaccines to get that efficacy um, rate really high. And it's usually one to two weeks after that second dose that you're considered protected. And then keep in mind, you know, that there are, like I mentioned, folks under the age of 16 who, who can still spread the virus and they, um, you know, they do, you know, although uh, the illness is milder in those individuals, we want to protect them as well. And so we want to continue wearing masks until we can get to the point where we've sort of blocked the transmission of virus in our community and the risk is so low uh, of a viral infection that, you know, we can return to normal as a society. Um, so thank you so much for your attention and I'd be happy to take any individual uh, questions that you might have. Thank you so much, Lisa, for that um, excellent presentation. There's so much information and we know that it does change rapidly. A um, couple of, uh, we've got a lot of questions coming in and we're trying to uh, navigate this so that we can uh, uh, try to respond as best we can to folks. Um, there was a question about uh, the term uh, clarity on the long COVID. So the, the question was, um, let me get back up to, we've got a whole bunch coming in just after you got out here. Um, some clarification about whether or not if someone has long COVID, is that considered like mild, moderate, or severe reaction to the virus? You've heard that term long, long COVID. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, this long COVID is, is, is quite mysterious to us still. And, and um, but it's definitely, I think, a real phenomenon that we're seeing. And, you know, I think it depends on the individual person. Some people, you know, it lingers and they don't feel so great, but they can go about, you know, their daily activities. And then other people's, you know, it, it, it just wipes them out. And, and so, um, you know, I think if you're asking in terms of vaccine protection, if you were to get vaccinated, you know, would you be protected against that, uh, that, that, um, that manifestation of the disease, that long, that long COVID? And I, I'm very hopeful that yes, it, that yes, it would. Uh, you know, I think um, especially these, these mRNA vaccines are, are the efficacy rates are so high that um, I think they're doing a great job of protect, protecting from even the mildest disease to the extreme disease. Thank you. Um, we've had a, a lot of questions come through from folks about their like individual health condition. And uh, one of the things we want to recommend to folks is um, is to make sure you have that conversation with your doctor in terms of when the vaccine is right for you because everyone uh, presents with a different uh, uh, medical history. Um, there is a, a question similar to, to that and that someone wants to know how long they should wait um, if they've had COVID, how long they should wait to get the vaccine. And we, again, we do recommend that you talk to your provider, but uh, Dr. Marisha, do you have any comments on that on how long someone should wait after they get the actual COVID to get the vaccine? That's right. So, so, you know, I think most physicians are saying wait at least two weeks. The CDC, CDC is saying wait 90 days if you, if you receive convalescent plasma or monoclonal antibody treatment. Um, again, you know, if you're a high risk individual, you know, I would talk with your physician and say, you know, I recovered from COVID, you know, a month ago, 
and I'm being offered the, you know, the mRNA Pfizer vaccine, should I get it? Um, you know, my guess is, you know, your physician's going to encourage you to get it because you're a high risk individual. Um, but typically we're saying, you know, physicians are saying you can wait at least two weeks. That way you won't have perhaps such a robust immune response to the vaccine that's left over from your response to the virus that could then dampen the response to the vaccine. Thank you. Um, and there was also a question about uh, if you could explain anything about the Brazil uh, uh, variant, any information on that? Yeah, so the Brazil, you guys are, you guys are good. You're, you're reading the news. Yeah, I, I didn't talk about the Brazilian variant. Um, it is here in the United States as well. It's, it's much like the, 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 the um, excuse me, not the UK variant, but the South African variant and the, and the Brazilian variant are of more concern than the UK variant. So the UK variant's thought to be the, you know, the one that's gonna, gonna, going to become dominant here in the US in the next couple of weeks. And the vaccines seem to do a really great job against that one still. And then these Brazilian and South African variants, um, they have higher immune escape. And so when we look at antibody responses to those variants, um, they, they, they do have more resistance to the antibodies than, than the original strain, but we have a great buffer. These vaccines are so effective um, that even if we have some reduction in, in efficacy, the, 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 the protection is still really great, especially against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. So that's, that's encouraging. Um, I wanted to bring this question up because I wanna make sure we could dispel any, any myths on this. So many ask whether or not, can a person mix the different vaccines to obtain a synergenic or booster to give longer coverage, such as mixing J&J &J and Moderna? Yeah, great question. And so, you know, what, what's being recommended now is that you, you, tr you know, it's, it's, it's really important. So the efficacy data that I shared with you, the protection data that we know about, you know, that's based on a defined regimen where you get, you know, the Pfizer dose, at, you know, day zero, and you get that second dose three weeks later. And then with Moderna, you get it four weeks later. And so those, that data that we have, that we know is really good is based on that. And so, you know, if, if, if at all possible, that's what we want, we want you to do. We want you to get, you know, that if you got the Pfizer, you know, um, first, you know, get it, get, get it as the second dose. Don't switch to Moderna. There may be some exceptional circumstances where that just can't happen. And the CDC has said, if that is the case, then try to get a second dose of something. Um, but we're, I, th I don't think that's going to be an issue because I do think we're going to see um, a huge increase in the availability in the availability of these vaccines in the next few weeks, and it's going to be really great when Johnson and Johnson's gets approved because it's one dose. You go for your one dose, and you don't have to worry about it. Um, and it, it also doesn't require this this cold storage that the mRNA vaccines do. Um, so it's going to be more widely distributed. And remember, don't worry about that 72% efficacy. It's going to it's going to protect you from severe disease. Thank you. And I, we have uh, several moderators on this session that are answering questions as well, um, the best they can. And if, if um, Stacy, if you have any questions that uh, seem to be coming through that are pretty common, um, feel free to, to ask uh, Dr. Marishi that. I'm gonna go ahead and just uh, give you another one here. Uh, let's see. What do we know about needing a booster every year or so like other vaccines? Is that, is that expected? 
Yeah, you know, we were hoping that the mutation rate of the coronavirus would be less than flu, and it, and it is. And so, as you guys know, we get a flu vaccine every year because the flu virus mutates so rapidly. Um, coronavirus doesn't quite mutate as rapidly as flu, but it may eventually become endemic, meaning it's going to circulate among the human population for many years, and it's just going to be a mild cold. And people that are at high risk are, are going to, you know, or, or, or um, you know, if the, if the protections, we're gonna follow people who are vaccinated and see if protection wanes over time or if it, if it lessens due to mutation of the virus. And so, you know, we might be seeing booster doses being administered, you know, yearly or every other year. Right, Lisa, we're gonna we're gonna keep keep uh, going for a few more here because they're trying to get you some different ones. Um, there's questions about if if someone has had COVID, um, they're told that their immunity due to that infection will last about 90 to 120 days. Is that proving to be true? And if so, how will the vaccines affect longer immunity time periods? So I think they're kind of getting at, you know, will the vaccine provide a longer protection, immunity protection than the fact that, you know, someone might've even had COVID and they've got that 90 to 120 days. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, um, you know, the, the, the immunity, you know, how long the immunity lasts from natural infection versus vaccination, you know, we can only go back as far as, you know, the virus itself, you know, uh, started, right? And, 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 and we can only go back as, as far as our, our vaccine trial started. And so as each month passes, we know more and more about the length of protection. Um, the one thing that we don't know is, you know, how ind individual people who have received natural or who, who were naturally infected with the virus, we don't know how that varies, right? And so we can take a population of individuals that were infected with the virus and we can look at their B cells, their T cells, their antibodies over many months and say, oh, we're still seeing that they're there. And, and so, you know, we do think protection um, or, or what we refer to as memory immune responses are there for, for many months, if not a year or longer. But we don't know how that varies based on whether it was a mild infection or a severe infection. What we do know is, is we have much more data on, you know, and we will have much more data on the vaccines because they're carefully con controlled trials and the, and the folks that are getting a defined dose of the vaccine are being monitored over time. And so we know, you know, uh, how long those antibody titers, for example, are lasting. And if they start to wane and we start to see people getting infected again, we can give a booster dose. Um, and so, you know, I do think that, uh, that our bodies are really incredible and that, and that they're capable of mounting long lasting memory responses, but the variability in people's ability to respond is what concerns me, you know, people over 80 versus people who are 20. And so I think that's why it's, it's safer for everybody to get vaccinated when, you know, when it's made available to them. Thank you. And I have, I've, uh, I'm going to try to get two more questions here and get them a little bit different questions for you. Um, uh, one of the questions is, what is likely the cause of symptoms of the second dose of the vaccine? A number of my friends and colleagues have said they felt very ill after the second dose. Thank you so much for asking that question. And I apologize I didn't answer, uh, address it in the, in the presentation. That is your body's immune response reacting to that second dose. So the first dose and the second dose are the exact same thing. The formulation is the exact same. The first time it's given to our bodies, our bodies say, oh, this is interesting. I see a spike protein that, you know, that 
I don't recognize, that's foreign, so I'm gonna mount an immune response to it. And so we have a couple of immune cells that are, that are reacting to it. But then what happens when we give that second dose is those couple of immune cells that are hanging around say, oh, I know this, I recognize this is bad. This is not, you know, this is non-self, this is foreign. I wanna mount an immune response to this. So those couple of cells that are already in our body, they react very aggressively to that second dose. And um, that's sort of what we refer to as potency of the vaccine. And so these, these mRNA vaccines are quite potent and they're inducing a really robust uh, secondary immune response. And that's a good thing because that means your immune system is reacting in an, in a pro, in an appropriate manner, mounting that protection that we want. And so uh, even though it, it, it really uh, stinks to have those symptoms for about 20, you know, 12 to 24 hours, it's a, it's a good sign that your body's reacting and, and mounting an immune response. And the very last question, we've got a couple here, but this is one is a unique. Um, could you go over efficiency again? If the percentage is 90%, does that mean that 90% of vaccinated people will experience no symptoms? and are completely immune and the remaining 10% will experience mild symptoms. Yeah, so, so what that efficacy reports, you know, efficacy is derived from a clinical trial. And so what that is reporting is that in the, when you compare the groups, the people that got the vaccine versus the people who got the control placebo, that no vaccine, right? Just, just the empty shot. That, that efficacy rate is the percent reduction in mild to moderate or symptomatic disease in the vaccinated group. So people that got the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine in the vaccinated group, there was a 94 to 95% reduction in symptomatic disease in this group versus the people who didn't get the, get the vaccine. And then when once it's administered to the population, we refer to it as effectiveness. What is the effectiveness of the vaccine? And so that might tend to be a little bit lower. Um, but what we're seeing is that, you know, people who are getting these vaccines are not getting hospitalized and they're not dying. And so even if you get, you know, a cold or um, a fever, you feel lousy for a couple of days, um, you know, you're not gonna get, you're not gonna get severely ill. You're not gonna go to the hospital and you're not gonna die. All of these vaccines are really great at, at preventing that. That's why I don't like to get hung up on those efficacy numbers. Just know that they're all really great vaccines, and they're going to save they're going to save lives, and they're going to help us get the herd immunity. Thank you. This is a, been such a great presentation, and this is what this is about: is saving lives. And I, I really hope folks are um, feeling confident, inspired to go get the vaccine when it's available to them. Uh, Dr. Marishi, we can't thank you enough for all the time you spent with us and, and giving your time. Again, we're very appreciative and. Uh, uh, please uh, know that we support the great work that you're doing and others at Tulane. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the AgriSafe Network podcast, where our mission is protecting the people who feed the world. You can learn more about the AgriSafe Network at agrisafe.org and be sure to check out the Learning Lab and all of the excellent resources available on the site. You can also find us on Facebook or contact us anytime at info at agrisafe.org.